We're taught that our federal government's like a stool with three legs, representing the three branches of government, executive, legislative, and judicial. Most citizens probably have a good handle on the first two. After all, we elect presidents and our representatives to Congress. The third branch, that of the Supreme Court, is perhaps less fixed in our minds, though its decisions have, since the earliest days of our republic, affected how our government functions and how we interact with it. Our guest, Michael G. Trachtman, has taken up the matter of our judicial branch of government with a new book titled The Supreme's Greatest Hits, The 34 Supreme Court Cases That Most Directly Affect Your Life. Mr. Trachtman is a founding partner of a major law firm located in Philadelphia and has previously authored What Every Executive Better Know About the Law. We're very pleased to have him join us today. Michael Trachtman, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you very much. Our Constitution was composed in the late 1780s, and of course it's, that makes it tough to keep it relevant as times change. Your book notes that over the long haul, the Supreme Court has by and large done a pretty good job of keeping up with the times. Can we start a bit by talking about how that, that is no mean feat? Well, the, the document itself is a magnificent document, and, and is, um, by most historians' accounts, the, the oldest constitution that, that has remained in effect uh, in the world, and, and that is of tremendous credit to the framers of the Constitution who initially recognized that they had to create a document that would outlive them by many, many, many generations, and, and they did that. Uh, what's occurred thereafter is that the Supreme Court has been populated uh, not solely, but in large measure by some truly brilliant and creative people who uh, have taken that Constitution and applied it through through slavery, through the abolition of slavery, through industrial revolutions, through the digital age in a, in a tremendously creative way, factoring in not only the law, but social considerations, culture considerations, and, and the rest of it, all the while creating a body of work that, that much of the rest of the world holds in awe. So it's, it's kind of a product of not only the framers, but the people who have populated the court since that time, creating something that defines the American way of life. and, and uh, it, recognizing that is, is one of the main things that motivated me to write this book. Well, you, you know that the Supreme Court has had many important decisions, which in retrospect still look brilliant. We need to talk about the one that really put the Supreme Court on the map and shaped really everything that followed, the, the celebrated 1803 decision, Marbury versus Madison. And this is a case that, that all history students study, and most of them uh, don't like it when they have to study it, <laughs> and that's only because it's not presented to them as it, as it really happened, which was a tremendous human drama between two giants of, of, of American history, uh, two gigantic minds, uh, and that would be Chief Justice John Marshall and Thomas Jefferson. Um, this is a case which would, which would make a great movie today. It, it, <laughs> it, it, it's just replete with drama, and it, it went a long way to defining American history. Marbury versus Madison arose out of the fact that when the Constitution was drafted, the framers really didn't say a whole lot about what the Supreme Court was and what its powers were. The Constitution just says that there's going to be judicial power in, in, the, in the judiciary branch and there's going to be a Supreme Court, but didn't really say what the power of the Supreme Court was. And John Marshall was somebody who firmly believed and wanted to make the Supreme Court supreme. Uh, Marbury versus Madison is the case that did that. It was a, a stare down between Marshall and Jefferson 
it became a, a great political battle, and the upshot was that a decision was rendered, which Jefferson accepted uh, under under some very cagey political circumstances that Marshall crafted into the decision. Uh, a decision was created which said the following. The Constitution is the supreme law of the land. The Supreme Court gets to interpret the Constitution. If you add those two things together, that means that the Supreme Court gets to decide whether anything that anybody else does in the government, any law, any action on the part of any other government official, the Supreme Court gets to decide whether or not that conforms with the Constitution. And if it doesn't, the Supreme Court gets to invalidate it. So what that means is that we stand in, in, a, in a situation today which is pretty unique in the world, maybe even in the history of the world, where we have a Supreme Court that can just say no to the President of the United States, to Congress, to your local municipal zoning official, on behalf of a single individual. So you or I can get into a contest with the President, and the Supreme Court stands between us and the President and can can allow us to triumph so that our individual rights are becoming become more important than than the other two 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 legs of that stool you talked about completely unique in the world that that we can do that and and that's something that just that simply defines the american way I guess someone, one Supreme Court justice, I can't remember who it was, many years later sort of summarized it by saying, well, the Constitution is what, what we say it is, and it all goes back to Marbury versus Madison. It is, and the court can, can not only define the Constitution, it can then measure what anybody else in the government does against the Constitution as it defines it, and if it chooses and believes that what anybody else has done uh, is adverse to the Constitution, simply nullify it with a stroke of the pen. Well, you also note the Supreme Court has made some decisions that hurt American society, sometimes for decades, and which in retrospect seem to take really indefensible positions. Let, let's talk about the worst of the worst, perhaps. Uh, the notorious uh, 1857 Dred Scott versus Sanford. Yeah, that was the case that many historians say, as much as anything else, lit a match to the conflict that ultimately ended up in the Civil War. We're, we're talking about the, the late 1850s when uh, the confrontation between the North and South over slavery is, is really getting to its peak. And Congress at that point essentially said, we've got to do something. And in 1820, long before this, Congress said, we at least have to, if not eliminate slavery from the southern states, we have to stop the spread of slavery into the new territories. We're making new states out west. And Congress enacted something that, that came to be known as the Missouri Compromise, which was a line that was drawn uh, on the southern border of Missouri and said, okay, no more slavery north of this line. We'll deal with what happened south of this line some other time, but no more slavery north of this line. The law had always been that if you had a slave and you took the slave into free territory, the slave became free. So that even if the slave then went back to slave territory, that, that notion of freedom still attached to the slave. The slave was free of all time, for all time. Dred Scott was a slave who got sold from, from one person to another, and, and Dred Scott's owner took him north of the Missouri Compromise line into free territory and then back again. And Dred Scott said, I'm free. I'm done. I'm free. He hired a lawyer. His case eventually got to the Supreme Court where he contended that he was free and sought his freedom. The Supreme Court heard the case and, and made an incredible decision in 1857. Supreme Court said two things. Said Number one, Dred Scott can't even get to court because he's property. He's not even a citizen who has access to a court. He doesn't have any rights. He's property. So, number one, Dred Scott loses on that basis. Number two, the court said, and oh, by the way, this Missouri Compromise line, which says no more slavery north of the line, 
Congress didn't have the power to do that. It's unconstitutional. We nullify it. No more stopping the spread of slavery. Well, you can imagine what that did to the, to the North uh, among those people who wanted to see no more slavery. You can imagine how that emboldened the South. Hey, even the federal government says there's no limits on slavery. As they say, the rest is history. Well, yes, and for, for this correspondent, there's a recent decision uh, I found indefensible, uh, wrong, and, and almost on par with Dred Scott, which I think we just want to mention uh, a bit about, 2000's Bush versus Gore. Uh, you note in the book this decision was criticized by many legal scholars, uh, comparing it to Dred Scott, and my question for you is, might we look back on Bush v. Gore as maybe the Dred Scott decision of the 21st century? We might. It can be argued as to whether it, it will have had the lasting effect that Dred Scott did. Um, but it, it, in a way, it's a decision that has, has the potential of crumbling the moral authority of the Supreme Court. And, and remember, the Supreme Court doesn't have an army. The Supreme Court doesn't have any way to enforce its decisions. It, it banks on its moral authority. And to the extent that the Supreme Court erodes its own moral authority by making decisions which appear to be politically motivated instead of motivated by an, an objective and neutral view of the law, well, then we're all in trouble. Because if, if the Supreme Court can't enforce its decisions, if what the Supreme Court says does not go, then there is really no way that any individual can enforce the liberties provided by our Constitution that would be the most significant constitutional crisis in our history. Let's go back to some triumphs of the Supreme Court, uh, starting with um, 1954's Brown versus Board of Education and, and the case it overturned, the famous 1896 Plessy versus Ferguson, which really validated an apartheid system here in America. Th those two cases are really fine examples of the good and the bad and more directly the process by which our law evolves through the Supreme Court. You know, the, the words in the Constitution stay the same. There, there's, there's equal protection under law in the Constitution. And, and as a matter of fact, words to that effect are literally carved in stone on, on the entrance to the Supreme Court building itself. Those words didn't change, but the interpretation and application of those words changed as over the course of 50 years as, as the Supreme Court composition changed. Uh, back in the Plessy versus Ferguson case, the Supreme Court issued a ruling that said equal protection under law can be had by separate but equal accommodations in this country, by a segregated society, separate but equal accommodations in restaurants and transportation and, and, and all of the rest of it. That, that was, of course, a joke. The, the, the uh, accommodations were separate, but they certainly weren't equal. The schools were separate, but they certainly weren't equal. And the law looked the other way. Over the course of time, however, uh, Chief Justice Warren went on the went on the court, and Brown versus Board of Education was brought by a cadre of lawyers. Thurgood Marshall headed the team later to become a Supreme Court justice himself, arguing that separate but equal is not equal protection. It simply doesn't work. Uh, and the Supreme Court issued Brown versus Board of Education, which uh, ruled unconstitutional the notion of segregation, desegregated the schools, and in the process, really set down the tone that led to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and which really led to the entire civil rights movement and, and, and the movement where the quest for equality became woven into the fabric of our society, much more so than it had been previous to that decision. So many view that decision as the most important decision of the 20th century, the decision which set the tone in, in deeds as well as words that this country would stand for equality, imperfectly, obviously, there's still a lot to be done, 
but that ingrained it into the law, unlike the way it was previous to that decision. In terms of rights of the accused, there's two important cases that you talk about in the book, uh, cases which really totally reshaped our criminal justice system. Can you talk a little bit about Gideon versus Wainwright and Miranda versus Arizona? We so much take these things for granted now, people forget. Gideon, a great movie, by the way, with with Henry Fonda and and, and a great book called Gideon's Trumpet. Gideon was the case that that established throughout the country, uh, at a state level as well as a federal level, the notion that you can't put somebody on trial for a crime. You, you, can't, you can't threaten to take away their liberty uh, unless they have a lawyer. Uh, previous to that time, in, in many courts, uh, particularly state courts at that time, the federal government was pretty well covered, but particularly in state courts, people were being arrested, oftentimes indigent people who could not afford to hire a lawyer. They, they get put into the midst of a system which is stranger in a strange land, a very foreign place with, a, with foreign concept, concepts, foreign language. They don't know how to present evidence. They don't know how to handle a trial. And you can get easily convicted in that kind of a situation uh, without a lawyer, even though, even though you're innocent. Gideon was a, a, an indigent person who was convicted uh, without a lawyer, and he literally hand-wrote out from prison a, a petition which was heard, eventually came to the Supreme Court, and eventually caused the Supreme Court to, to revolutionize our criminal justice system by requiring that nobody can be criminally tried without a lawyer, and if they couldn't afford a lawyer, the court would appoint a lawyer for them. And that's the Gideon case, and, and that obviously stands as a pillar of our, of our civilized society today that can't railroad people unless at least they're represented, and the government is held to a burden of proof that somebody is guilty, uh, having been presumed innocent. The, the Miranda case went a little further than that and, and said that, well, if you're going to appoint counsel for somebody and you're going to give people these rights, you've got to tell them about it you, you, when you arrest them. And that's the very famous Miranda warnings that, that we all hear about. You've got to tell people that they have a right to counsel, and you've got to tell people that they better keep quiet because any, uh, anything they say to the police can and will be held against them, and maybe they want to talk to a lawyer first, the, the concept being, what good's a right to counsel if people don't know that they have a right to counsel? And that was the genesis of the Miranda warnings. Miranda has an interesting ending to it, however, that most people don't know about. Uh, Miranda was, was investigated and eventually convicted on the basis of a confession that he made, and the confession was overturned because it was probably coerced. Nobody could really tell, but in any event, Miranda didn't know that he had a right to counsel, and the Supreme Court said uh, there were enough doubts here that we needed to do something about this. So Miranda's confession and conviction was overturned. And, and the message of the Miranda case from the Supreme Court was, don't just try to get a confession out of somebody. The police should be trying to gather evidence rather than simply trying to get a confession against somebody who really doesn't know what's going on and doesn't have counsel. Well, the police went back after Miranda was freed by the Supreme Court. The police went back. They did their investigation. And guess what? Miranda was convicted and went to jail. So... There was an ending here that not many people know about. Everybody thinks, oh, Miranda warning, it was a technicality, he got off. He didn't. He didn't get off. The police went back, did their investigation, proved the way that perhaps they should have proved it to begin with, that Miranda was guilty, and he was convicted and went to jail. We're speaking with Michael Trachtman, author of The Supreme's Greatest Hits, the 34 Supreme Court cases that most directly affect your life. When trying to match what, what the Constitution's founders intended with a modern society, the court sometimes has to be, I guess, inventive uh, might be a good word. The Constitution does not specify a right to privacy in so many words, 
but the Supreme Court has ruled that it is implied, leading to a couple famous cases on reproductive rights. Can you talk about, uh, well, both Griswold versus Connecticut and Roe v. Wade? Yeah, Griswold is, is the case that started this. Um, when, when, you, when you watch on television uh, the confirmation hearings of Supreme Court justices, which have become television events, as, as you know, and you'll, you'll see senators asking uh, prospective Supreme Court uh, justices what their position is on Griswold. That's really code for what's your position on Roe versus Wade, but I don't want to ask it in so many terms. Griswold is the case that formed the foundation for Roe versus Wade. Griswold was a was a case where there was a uh, a statute in Connecticut which which said that no one was allowed to use contraception, not even married couples. Everybody agreed that this is an absolutely ridiculous statute that should be off the books. Um, it was challenged in in Connecticut. Uh, eventually, it went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court had to determine whether or not that statute prohibiting the use of contraception, even by a married couple, was constitutional. This highlighted the distinction in philosophies among Supreme Court justices that has lasted all during our history. Some Supreme Court justices take the position that the Constitution is a very living, breathing document that should be interpreted a little bit more loosely so as to adapt to unforeseen situations and changing times. Uh, other justices feel that the Constitution should be interpreted in a very limited, very strict way, means what it says, says what it means. Don't strain yourself to interpret it to situations where the words don't ordinarily allow it. Uh, a bare majority led by Justice Douglas, a very liberal justice in terms of interpreting the Constitution, found in the Constitution a right of privacy that allowed him to invalidate that Connecticut law as being an unconstitutional impingement on privacy. Obviously, as you pointed out, there's nothing in the Constitution that says in so many words that there is a right of privacy, but Justice Douglas says it's implied, it's between the lines. When people talk about us being able to be free from unreasonable searches, for example, and lots of other things, there's a right of privacy in there. Other justices were vehement that there's no right of privacy. Connecticut should repeal its law if it wants. It's not up to the federal government and the Supreme Court to make every wrong right much as they'd like to get rid of that Connecticut statute, it was not within the power of the Supreme Court to do so, they said, and you had that big cleavage on the court. In any event, a right of privacy arose, and it was on the basis of that right of privacy that years later, Justice Blackmun and a majority of the Supreme Court uh, found that laws prohibiting abortion uh, was also an impingement on the right of privacy, and you know where we've gone from there. Well, the rights of the government versus the rights of private citizens are often argued before the court. There was a very contentious case in recent years. Uh, Kelo versus City of New London that concerned the seizing of private property still reverberating about the country. Can you talk about Kelo? Yeah, Kelo involved a, a case involving a town in Connecticut, New London, which was economically depressed. Uh, and the city fathers of, of New London wanted to do something about that. Now, we've, we've all heard the term eminent domain. Uh, or, or the process of condemning property for hundreds of years, even even before uh, the United States was born in, in, in English law, it's always been a given that the government can take land from a private citizen for fair compensation under the power of eminent domain. And the way we usually, however, conceive of that is in a very limited way, where there, there's perhaps a, a public highway that's being laid out, a new highway, and it's going to go through somebody's backyard and so you've got to take that or a water treatment plant or, or some such thing as that, a utility or some measure of infrastructure which requires a private sacrifice for the public good in extreme circumstances. 
The, the question in New London, however, went beyond that, and it was this. The, 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 the government in charge of New London wanted to take an entire development, not to build a highway or a water treatment plant, but to build a commercial development that would have private commercial interest in it, an office park, a shopping center, that sort of thing, under the theory that this would do a lot of public good. And the question was, could the power of eminent domain be extended beyond the normal let, let, let's build a utility, let's build infrastructure to, let's build a commercial development that might revitalize an economy. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, the power of eminent domain does, in fact, extend that far. doesn't have to be. Not every state has to allow that. But if a state chooses to allow that, it's not unconstitutional, which means that you could be sitting in your backyard today, and tomorrow your backyard can hold a Ritz-Carlton Hotel, uh, if, 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 in fact, the local government decides that's what's best for the local economy. This provoked a firestorm, as you pointed out, and many, many states have, have under the face of public protest, rallied to try and enact legislation which would limit these rights and, and make it absolutely clear that the right of eminent domain is extremely limited to the kinds of circumstances I described before. But unless and until that's done... Lots of people across the country are presently facing situations, whether it's good or bad is not for me to say, where economic development projects are being coupled with the power of eminent domain, and only time will tell as to how far that will be allowed to go. Well, everything we've talked about so far, I think I knew a little bit about, uh, but you had a couple of cases in your book I, I was completely unaware of, and I'm sure I'm not alone in that. You noted in the book that many think they're two of the most significant cases of the 20th century. Monroe versus Pape, and one I really love the name of, Bivens versus six unknown named agents of Federal Bureau of Narcotics. <laughs> what, what do those cases do for uh, American citizens? Well, essentially what those cases do is, is clarify the fact that there's a remedy for people when something may have been done wrong to them. I mean, th those are cases which make it plain that you not only have constitutional rights on paper, but you have constitutional rights in the form of a real remedy should something be done to you that, that is, in fact, unconstitutional. What happened in the, in the Monroe versus Pape case was police misconduct. And up until that time, the law had been very problematic in terms of people who might be damaged by uh, police misconduct, FBI misconduct, investigative misconduct, anything along those lines. Monroe versus Pape established the right to sue under a provision of the law that has become colloquially known as Section 1983. Lots of times you read in the newspaper about how someone has filed a Section 1983 case against the government for having done one thing or another which breaches someone's constitutional rights, and all that comes out of that Monroe versus Pape case where the Supreme Court decided, you know what, if the government damaged you, if it, if it takes your property unlawfully, for example, uh, it, if, it, if it violates your rights to privacy, uh, if, it, if it improperly compromises your right to free speech, your religious rights, discriminates against you in a racial way, um, you've got rights to damages. You can bring what's called a Section 1983 case and get yourself to damages. So it's a remarkable characteristic of our government where, thanks to the Supreme Court, the federal government has afforded to the citizens of the country the right to sue the federal government for damages if the federal government does something wrong, uh, literally only in America. Well, here in a radio station, as with any other media outlet, we have to be cognizant of what defines free speech and what its limits are. You've mentioned five cases in the book that are related to speech, and, and they're all relevant, but I'd like to focus on one in particular. 
which granted media outlets some added latitude to cover events, the 1964 uh, New York Times versus Sullivan. Yeah, I think that's one of, the, one of the most important cases of the 20th century. And it, and it certainly is the case that allows us to have conversations such as what we're having right now. There's a body of law called defamation, libel, slander, most people have heard about. And, and the law of defamation basically provides that if, if you or I were to say something false, about someone else that damaged that the reputation of that someone else, we could be liable in damages in a defamation lawsuit for libel or slander. Uh, it wouldn't matter if if we used good faith, if we just made a mistake, if we if we really believed it's true. Uh, if it's false and it damages somebody's reputation, we could be liable. Well, think about how that would limit the the public discourse about public figures. If you had a local mayor and 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 you had wanted to have a dialogue on the radio or elsewhere about about that government official, you probably wouldn't do that, or you'd at least bite your tongue for fear of a defamation suit if you were to say something which turned out to be false, even though you believed it to be true at the time. Public discourse is, is, is one of the lifebloods of our society. Supreme Court got involved in, in this, this situation and decided in the New York Times v. Sullivan case that when it comes to public figures, the laws of defamation have to be altered, have to be changed. People have to be free to criticize in good faith public figures. Yeah, if you purposefully and maliciously tell a lie about somebody, you can still be liable for defamation. But if you're expressing your opinion or you're, you're making your good faith comments, you've got to be free from the fear of lawsuit. And thanks to the New York Times versus Sullivan case, You've got newspaper commentaries, media commentaries, talk shows, radio shows, call-in shows where people are free to criticize in good faith public figures and public officials without fear of those kinds of lawsuits. Well, we, we are running out of time, but before we go, I want to I ask you about some issues that you think might be likely to come before the court. A lot of people are curious to see what direction the Supreme Court will take with John Roberts and Sam Alito on board. What, what are you most curious about, about watching in terms of decisions, new directions they may go? I'm, I'm very curious about uh, campaign finance reform. Obviously, this is a situation that's at the top of the priority list for a lot of people in terms of taking even the suspicion out of government to the extent that government officials may be influenced in their decision-making by large contributions from special interests. And there, there certainly has been a lot of activity in this area. There's been a couple of very important Supreme Court cases. There's been legislative responses. But the loopholes abound. Uh, in terms of big money getting into politics. And, and there's a real question as to where Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito come down on this because there are First Amendment issues involved. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not in the business of predicting Supreme Court decisions for sure, but this is something to watch very closely, whether they will allow Congress to further uh, regulate campaign finance reform or whether they will render a decision which substantially compromises the ability of Congress to regulate campaign contributions. That's, that's certainly one. Another issue is, is the, whole, the whole matter pertaining to the Internet. I mean, the Internet is, is, a, is a First Amendment dream come true uh, in terms of the ability to, to access and express an unrestricted variety of thoughts and views and opinions and information sources, some, some not so accurate, some very accurate. question becomes, will this be regulated in some way? Can it lawfully be regulated in some way? most particularly to protect children. Great balancing act that has to be done here. Pornography is replete on the Internet. How can you regulate it uh, to protect children while at the same time not casting your net too far, 
Do we even have the technology to figure out among the millions and millions and millions of postings on the Internet how to find the ones that might be offensive to children? Those kinds of issues are there uh, for, for certain. And a final issue is something, is a case that was argued in December of 2006. It's going to involve the role of race in our society. Can you consider race, can you give preferences to minorities in order to increase diversity in in our society? We've always tried to be a colorblind society where race doesn't matter. But suppose you're using race uh, to promote something as opposed to... uh, to dissuade a, a minority, such as to promote greater greater diversity in a high school or a college or even in a business, can you do that? Supreme Court's about to speak to that, and and that will define an awful lot of what we can and can't do in our society. Those are those are three issues that I find to be extremely important, and we're right on the cusp of hearing from the court with respect to them. Well, final note I'd like to make today. On your book, you noted that although you're a founder of Powell, Trachtman, Logan, Carroll, and Lombardo PC, a litigation and business practice law firm, you nevertheless have spent thousands of hours learning how to not write like a lawyer. <laughs> we, we really want to express the gratitude of the public for that. Thank you. Thank you. And, and uh, uh, it literally has taken thousands of hours. But I, I probably haven't mastered the art of not speaking like a lawyer, but I'm working on that. The book is The Supreme's Greatest Hits, the 34 Supreme Court cases that most directly affect your life and most fascinating read. Recommend it very highly. Uh, Michael G. Trachtman, thank you for speaking with us about it. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it.